Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. So I'm excited to have on today Dr. Badawi, founding Executive Director and Treasurer of the International Quranic Studies Association. Welcome, Doctor. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Asher. It's my pleasure. This is a a topic, a uh, subject that's very near and dear to my heart. So, and you know, I'm having someone at your caliber uh, joining me on this show. So I'm very, very happy about that. Um, I'm just going to jump right in and ask you to introduce yourself, your background, your research interests, stuff like this. Very good. Uh, I want to thank you again for having me and apologize in advance to all the listeners uh, for any mistakes that I'll make in advance. Uh, surely they're coming. And also uh, wish that everyone's sort of uh, healthy during COVID and uh, myself, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a slog and I've been uh, I've been delayed. Uh, otherwise, my name is Amran al-Badawi. I am a program director and associate professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Houston uh, in Texas. And I had uh, the pleasure of doing my uh, doctorate at the University of Chicago. I finished in 2011 uh, under Fred Donner, who is uh, otherwise, I think, a well-known historian of uh, early Islamic history. And I had sort of other guidance. I have, of course, my mentor and friend, Gabriel Reynolds, who, uh, with whom I co-founded the International Quranic Studies Association. Um, and uh, you know, my story, of course, begins way before that and uh, one of the one of the most common questions I've had throughout my life that I've I don't want to say wrestled with but sort of had to deal with and even until today is sort of where are you from you know what 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 are your origins and in this question is it's it's basically a time capsule it's a a nutshell in a nutshell the story of who I am and the impulse behind my research uh, and my career and, you know, uh, my publications and my teaching. It's what is the origin? Because uh, I, as a, as, a, as a young man and even as, as, a, as a boy, had to wrestle with who am I? Um, I was born in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which is a beautiful country, uh, melting pot of, you know, mainly Asian, but also sort of Middle Eastern people. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Muslim country with a very... Uh, uh, heavy and mixed, diverse Asian profile. Um, and I grew up in a country, at least for the first five years or so of my life, that was so diverse and so comfortable with its diversity. This was long before, you know, the, you know, major sort of uh, altercations between, uh, you know, sort of East and West and Islamophobia and terrorism and all this, all this stuff that we are totally mired in today. So I, I enjoyed sort of the early, early years of my life in a beautiful country and took for granted just how colorful I and everyone else was. Uh, my, my mother is ethnically Egyptian, Arabic speaking. My late father was Malaysian of Indian origin uh, from West Bengal, and he'd sort of lived everywhere. And that's sort of like everyone in Malaysia. Everyone is just sort of this sort of maritime, warm cultures mixing with each other and a lot of our friends were sort of mixed also Middle Eastern, South Asian, or, you know, even occasionally European with something else. So that that also um, was a big investment on 
the next stage of my life when we moved to Saudi Arabia and then to Egypt. Uh, we, I spent my formative years again as a as a as a young as a youth as a teenager uh, between the Middle East before coming to the U.S. And um, one thing that struck me when I when I went to those countries in the Middle East was okay, well, you know, I was moving with my family, uh, with my parents and my siblings. Um, I, I come from, you know, uh, a long line of medical doctors, uh, well-respected and successful. Um, and I always, I always found it odd when I got to the Middle East that I'm like, this is sort of the breadbasket. This is sort of the origins of, uh, you know, uh, of Islam and Islamic civilization, because that's, that's sort of the, that was probably the, the common denominator, the common thread. Uh, my mother had come from a different culture, my father from a different culture, and we lived in a, th- we were in a third culture. I'm a third culture um, product, shall we say. And I came to this place which seemed odd because uh, they tended to practice this religion or this, this common bond that I was uh, just beginning to understand or even be curious about. In a very limited way, and I found that to be troublesome. Um, you know, whether whether it was a very sort of uh, 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 limited uh, interpretation of Islam uh, that was uh, increasingly Salafi-based, uh, increasingly uh, conservative and based on uh, focusing mainly on uh, on Sunnah and uh, you know think, think, things that today again we sort of take for granted. It's almost just like that's the, the shape of, of at least of Sunni Islam. Um, rather than what would, you know, many decades later, you know, I had no idea what, uh, you know, what falsafa was or Sufism uh, or, you know, other, you know, major, major uh, uh, sub-traditions within uh, the Islamic umbrella. So when I, when I was growing up, I, you know, I went through a myriad of languages, the first one being Bahasa and, and English, so Malay and English, and then uh, being thrust into Arabic. And then uh, French, I had to learn French, and that was, for me, uh, very difficult and traumatic for various different reasons. Um, my father passed when I was 11, so, um, you know, we had to move from Saudi Arabia to Egypt. And so it was, it was in general, the mood was not good. And uh, the societies in which we live in, uh, whilst we were, we were doing fine going through schools, but I was, I was very curious and troubled growing up. Um, I'm like, why, you know, what's, who am I? Why is, uh, you know, why is this seemingly very diverse culture and, uh, you know, the depths of civilization, if I'm in Egypt, why am I not seeing that? Why am I not seeing that richness manifested, uh, you know, in an everyday way? Um, Why do I feel that uh, Arabs or Muslims, my people, you know, here, uh, don't appreciate their tradition sufficiently? Um, My curiosities really began... um, the final years of my father's life were in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he, he, used to, he was a voracious reader, and he had books about everything. And I'll never forget there's one book that piqued my interest. It was called The Black Death. It was about the Lebanese Civil War in the 1970s. Had horrific images in there. This is before internet, before you know, uh, mobile phones, anything like that. And, uh, and I, I was so intensely uh, curious about this. And that book, I, I started reading it and I started learning about the Lebanese civil war. And Lebanon, of course, is a melting pot of the Middle East. And it's sort of just a melting pot of, of just, you know, uh, Near Eastern civilization going back thousands of years. Um, so that also began to shape my worldview. When my father passed, 
things got you know bad and they got difficult um, and we had to move to my mother's native country that being Egypt and the part of my father I took with me was the library that he left behind. And, you know, a couple of years later in uh, our, our home in Egypt, I picked up that book again. I picked up that book with, with, the, with those really horrific images and, 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 I, and it rekindled my interest. And I also picked up other books my dad had. He had an interest in reading the New Testament, the Old Testament, you know. Um, and my, my, my interest began with um, drawing maps and tracing maps. I always tell my boys, I have, I have, I know you have a, you have a boy, mashallah, I have three boys. And um, I tell, I tell my kids, I joke with them all the time. I said, I discovered geography before I discovered girls. Um, so, you know, we have a little chuckle about that, but for me, it was very serious. So my curiosity about the world, my predicament about being an outsider, my, my confusion about how um, society was, you know, uh, uh, was rich, but impoverished. That the that uh, anyway, so my interest in geography shifted to sort of an interest in uh, religion and looking at you know sort of reading the Bible alongside the Quran, and uh, even in Egypt, in our home in Egypt, whilst we were going through school and doing what kids do, I would have there was literally I had a I think it was a, the New Jerusalem Bible, famous you know old Catholic Bible with uh, bona fide uh, Quran printed in you know uh, in in Saudi Arabia. And I had them inside one another. I would read them in that way. I was, I think, maybe you know, 12, 13. And uh, that, it fostered another interest in culture and then in language. And then, uh, you know, and then a, my interest in, in sort of, shall we say, the, the humanities and the shape of society and civilization just kept growing. And it kept growing sort of uh, um, at an exponential rate. Um, Anyway, uh, at some point, you know, my my brother had to come to medical school. He came to the U.S. I came with him, and you know, again, it were those were those were difficult days. But um, coming to the U.S., our home base was New Jersey, and I, you know, I had a couple of years of high school in Egypt, a couple of years in New Jersey, and from there, I did my undergrad at Rutgers University. I did a double, a sort of dual degree in computer science and in religious studies. Computer science was to sort of pay the bills, um, you know, coming out of school and religious studies was, you know, my my curiosity. That was my passion at the time. And uh, following that, I did a master's at uh, the Temple University, uh, also in religion. And, you know, that I worked with uh, Mahmoud Ayoub and with Khaled Yahya Blankenship and with a host of other, uh, Valisiki Limbaris and other other folks, you know, um, you know, honing my skills in the theory of religion and um, uh, studying, you know, Islamic texts, Christian texts. Um, and then um, soon after doing my doctorate at the, uni- at the University of Chicago, uh, where I really got deep into my, my passion uh, at that point for Syriac. I started Syriac, I started studying Syriac on my own, really as a teenager. There were not that great resources on, on the internet at that time, but you know, there were sort of like the alphabet and you know, those phrase phrase books and things like that. I was just sort of gobbling that stuff up. And with each stage of education I started deepening my knowledge. And at the university at the University of Chicago I did, you know, like uh, three years or so of you know, Syriac and Aramaic and various dialects, um, uh, old old uh, South Arabian and of course tons of coursework on uh, you know Islamic tradition 
and Islamic history. Um, uh, and of course, my uh, dissertation was on the Quran and the Syriac Gospels, um, and it turned into a book, my first book. And uh, since then, uh, I published yesterday, not, not, forgive me, last year, um, Paula Sanders, my colleague here in Houston, she's at Rice University and myself, we edited uh, a conference turned into a book called Communities of the Quran, which again, it's all again, it's about sort of my obsession with this conglomeration of Islamic civilization. How does all this stuff fit together? How do we build bridges? How do we understand Islamic civilization uh, as a whole, rather than just picking one piece and then just, uh, you know, committing ourselves to it so intensely? Um, so those are, you know, and then I have various publications on the Quran and Syriac literature and early Islamic history and late antiquity and things of that nature, which I'm sure uh, you're, you're familiar with. Um, one last thing I'll say, just in the spirit of introduction, is when I finished my degree in 2011, I uh, I got a phone call from again my friend and colleague Gabriel Reynolds. Uh, he said, um, you know, he was thinking um, he was he was speaking with SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature, very well respected uh, academic society, um, which brings together scholars who do you know a Bible and Christian Jewish studies, etc. And it has been doing so for over 100 years, one of the oldest uh, organizations uh, in North America of its nature. And, you know, they wanted to start or they were talking about starting a, um, a society for Quranic studies. And uh, immediately, you know, Gabriel and I jumped on board and uh, we co-founded the International Quranic Studies Association. The press release was published in 2012. 2013, we had our first steering committee meeting uh, in, in uh, Chicago. 2014, we had our first conference in uh, Baltimore, and then, you know, we just started um, uh, the rhythm of annual meetings, annual conferences in North America, uh, going throughout different cities, you know, Boston, San Diego, uh, you know, San Antonio, uh, throughout. And we also had uh, international conferences in Indonesia and in Tunisia, um, Morocco, and uh, of course now COVID has come and sort of shut things down. Things are moving online. But I, I co-founded ICSA probably for the same or very similar reason to your doing this podcast. Uh, myself being an academic and being a Muslim and being, I feel, sort of a global citizen and wrestling with sort of the international nature of some societies and maybe increasingly as we move forward after the 80s and 90s and certainly today in America, how parochial and xenophobic we are. Uh, in every way possible, right? It's so bad right now um, uh, for so many reasons. So when when we began Iqsa, I said, you know, I want to bring Muslims and Arabs and, you know, and South Asians and Iranians and, you know, I want to bring them into the fold. I want the Western Academy and more traditionally trained Islamic scholars to talk to one another and to read each other's work and to benefit from each other. And it's, you know, it's totally, it's, it's mutually beneficial. And one thing I noticed when I was studying at Chicago and other places, you know, talking to, to Fred Donner and other, other folks, um, you know, Fred and I are friends as well, just how disconnected the two sort of academies are. So I thought, you know, I have an opportunity um, to do some good um, through academia. And one thing that very much shapes, who, you know, who I am in my career is, I believe that scholarship and teaching and everything that I do is a service. And I know that this is, I have a major disagreement with some of my colleagues who I respect very much, who believe that scholarship is sort of, 
you know, scholarship is its own thing. It's almost art for art's sake. There is also scholarship. It's just it stands on its own. It's a firm and formidable force. And I don't disagree with that, but I am not that kind of scholar. I believe that the scholarship I write and the, the lectures and talks that I participate in and, the, you know, whether it's public or, or um, for a specialized audience, that at least to me personally, it is it has to sort of benefit someone in a in a, in a in a way beyond just facts and figures. And maybe I'm not phrasing it, you know, particularly eloquently right now, but uh, that's something that's motivated me and it's motivated me to, to co-found ICSA. And, uh, you know, of course, we've I, I think we've done we've done a lot of terrific work. We've made some mistakes along the way. We learn from our mistakes. We come back and do it better. We have, I think, some of the best scholars of Quran and, you know, epigraphy, paleography, manuscripts, uh, history, theology, you know, Christian studies, Jewish studies, all, you know, Islamics from all around the world. And uh, we have, of course, a thriving blog. We have the Journal of the International Quranic Studies Association, which has published four issues until now. Uh, we have a, a book series, which has published two books until now. And a third of uh, the proceeds to the Tunisia conference are, uh, I think, in the final stages. We used to, until recently, again, have conferences around the world and across uh, the United States, North America. We hope to you know, go back to those days in, in, you know, in, in a more maybe ecologically friendly way. But... I'm very much, uh, I don't necessarily want to say emotionally, but I'm very personally connected to my uh, my research. And I think all of us, all of us are. And I think that it's important as scholars, and I've tried to do this in my, you know, my first nine, 10 years uh, uh, in, in my job, to be honest about it, rather than state, you know, this is the absolute truth to say, you know, I, I'm coming to this as a Muslim, but as, as an academic. And what does it mean to be a Muslim? I you know, I'm not necessarily like a lot of my co-religionists, who I respect very much, and I'm not necessarily like a lot of my colleagues, who I also respect very much. Anyway, that's the long and short of it. Thank you so very much. And you know, these stories they they they, they just they always captivate me. And these people who are kind of you know uh, leaders in the field, uh, when you kind of hear their the questions that they had, the questions that they struggled with, the directions their life took, the decisions they made, it's just it's really really captivating. And I, I think you're um, the quality of kind of wanting a, I shouldn't say practical, but maybe I'll just say it, uh, a practical application of the stuff that you study, of your scholarship. I think that's really admirable. Also, I, I, I don't know where I heard this, but I, I thought that you were half Egyptian and half Hyderabadi. <laughs> I've never actually been to Hyderabad, you know. I uh, I made sort of a, a I don't want to say like a, a family pilgrimage to India a few years ago to discover my family there, rediscover them after many, many decades of not not visiting. But I've uh, it's it's West Bengal and Ca- Calcutta to be specific. But I have I have, I have family sort of all over. Um, <laughs> OK, so we're just going to get started and I'm going to ask, what is the the traditionally understood story of the Quran's origins? I mean, who were the people involved? You know, what was it like in their life? Uh, where do we get the story in, and, and are the sources for the story are the authentic? Okay, so the classical Islamic tradition, that is to say, the uh, body of literature written primarily in Arabic, later in Persian and other languages, stemming from roughly 750, maybe more like 800, till maybe the 13th century, what we call maybe the, the, the classical period. We have a lot of literature that is based on what we may call in Arabic akhbar or hadith, right? Um, sort of just reports, oral history, oral reports that come from individuals who either 
uh, were contemporaneous with Muhammad the Prophet or uh, after him, right? The Sahabis or uh, so Sahaba or the Tabi'in or Tabi'in. Tabi so you have so the, the, those three generations that the classical uh, sources uh, extol, and we could talk about that separately. But you know, you have just to briefly touch upon the sources. You know, within the late eighth till uh, you know early ninth century, the first bodies of literature you have. Uh, what what it, what is it that Muslims started writing when they first started writing? Now, first of all, you have the Quran, which is a, a text you can date to. If you want to be really really sort of uh, you know out there, you can say maybe even the early seventh century. Uh, if you want to be sort of in the middle, you'll maybe say around 656, which is the death of uh, Caliph uh, Uthman, Uthman ibn Affan. And if you want to be sort of very conservative about things, you can say you know until Abdul Malik, uh, who's, who dies in 705. Uh, you don't have any writing. It, that is of a literary nature, that books that people publish, that people sell or, you know, copy uh, that are extant in this time period. They really they really emerge afterwards and they emerge with the with the Abbasids. The common wisdom, of course, is that, you know, the Umayyads uh, are conquering the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, when the dust settled, the Abbasids took over and they made sort of this intellectual uh, empire. And there's a lot of truth to to that very basic claim, that outline. If we look during the Abbasids, who start in 750 till about uh, 1257 or so, uh, you have the Sira, the, uh, which is the hagiography of Muhammad. It is the literally the Sirat Rasulullah means the life of the of the of the Apostle of God. It's so important for especially your Muslim audience to realize that is exactly how Christians wrote about their saints. You know, the life of Ishoya, the life of Ephraim, etc. And the, 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 the term Sira fits in the category that we would speak about, whether, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, the realm of history or religion, of hagiography, lives of saints. In this case, it's not a saint, it's someone who's, you know, like the greatest among them, uh, the, Muhammad the Prophet. So you have Sira, you have the Maghazi conquests, you have Akhbar or Hadith, the prophetic traditions, and you have um, the Tabaqat literature a little bit later, uh, which is literally sort of the biographies and the, the shape of uh, the Islamic intellectual tradition. And other sort of more, even more further oral traditions like, you know, the Ayyam al-Arab and uh, and other bodies of literature and Sha'ar poetry and various bodies of Arabic, you know, Khalil ibn Ahmad and, and Siba Wahi that are, that, are, that are famous for teaching us Arabic. All of this comes way after the Quran. Some, you know, again, some estimates are as little as 60 years after and others maybe as much as two centuries. So you have about 100 years or so uh, of, of, of oral history after which these huge luminaries, you know, uh, whether it's Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, Tabari, uh, Ibn Sa'd, uh, you know, Ibn, Ibn al-Nadim, these encyclopedic, there's, of course, a long tradition of encyclopedism and encyclopedic knowledge that uh, was very strong within Islamic Civ. These guys, again, a century or so, plus or minus, start writing. They start writing about who was Muhammad the Prophet? What was this message that he brought, the Quran? You know, what, you know, what, what is Islam? What was, what was, what was the early, you know, birth pangs in Mecca and Medina and then the Futuhat, right? The Maghazi. They start writing about this stuff, and within all that uh, oral, the oral history turned text, coming a century after the fact, there are various nuggets of information that inform us, according to the memory of early classical Muslims, about what the Quran is. And 
Now, it's not just among Muslims. One thing I also want to bring to you to your attention is, you know, one of the one of the earliest narratives we have of the Quran being sort of collected and edited and printed comes from Abdul Masih al-Kindi, uh, which I'm, I don't have his date right now. I'm not sure if it's ninth or 10th century. Um, but, uh, you know, he's he's Christian and he's writing about, you know, how these Muslims, you know, his cousins collected and wrote their text. That's fascinating. Uh, we have also nuggets of information from the seerah of uh, Ibn Ishaq preserved in Ibn Hisham al-Tabari. We have nuggets of information in the hadith. And I think that, you know, the traditional narrative will be something that uh, a lot of your listeners will, will be familiar with, uh, namely that under the first caliph Abu Bakr and then second caliph Omar, there were sort of attempts to sort of collect uh, from the the companions of the Prophet, you know, the, the Quran. What, what Quran do you know? And that uh, these efforts uh, did not necessarily result in anything uh, textual, not as far as we know, but that really uh, it was under the reign of uh, Uthman ibn Affan, who uh, certainly his reign uh, is famous for uh, the collecting by, should we say, committee, uh, Zayd ibn Thabit, right, uh, sort of supervising the collecting and the editing and the uh, distribution of, you know, what, what, what is the Quran that we have today? And that presumably happens in the 650s, 640s, 650s, right? And how is this material collected? So again, according to the hadith and other and other reports, you know, uh, it's from the memories of the companions. It's from whatever existing writings, uh, the shoulder blades of you know, uh, you know, and, uh, the animals that uh, people preserved, or on uh, you know, scraps of scraps of what is it wood or, or stone? We don't have any evidence of this, but that's what's claimed in the tradition. And we have also evidence later on that Abdul Malik uh, Ibn Marwan, the we could maybe say the first great caliph, or you know maybe after Uthman the second great caliph, something like that, uh, prior to the Abbasids, uh, he in his reforms to again give us the uh, Arabic script that we have today, uh, and uh, to uh, the building of the Dome of the Rock and the the, the Quran, the Quranic inscriptions around there, um, the sort of Arabization of the uh, empire and the islamization of the empire in in a, in a public way right uh, to demonstrate especially uh, if you ask my opinion to, to jews and christians that we are we are muslim we are an arab muslim empire um, and this is this is how it is from now we're in charge and that we're we and islam is now the most powerful religion not christianity and not judaism and to do that especially again in jerusalem sent a very strong statement and that's that's a separate subject but you know telling the story of the quran occurred in this context and that uh, Abdul Malik, of course, his governor, Al-Hajjad ibn Yusuf Thaqafi, uh, notorious uh, governor in, in Iraq, uh, he was in charge of supervising sort of the editing of this text, the improving of this text, uh, which uh, presumably had already reached the Amsar in, you know, in Iraq and Syria, uh, other places in the Hejaz and um, across Arabia, eventually to Egypt as well. That's the traditional narrative uh, that somewhere between the six around say 640 till about 705 the quran was collected and then later was edited as far as reliability of sources this is an an, an ongoing sort of debate which in my early years i have to confess uh you know i was maybe i had more patience for and uh it's it's very important for us to uh debate the veracity and authenticity of sources now where do we get that from we actually get it from the islamic tradition itself right if imam bukhari says that he collected you know, 6,000 hadiths, but he listened to over 100,000. Well, that tells me that, you know, the the authenticity of 
the hadith reports that Imam al-Bukhari himself was collecting was something like, you know, five or 10%. Um, so if you ask me now, I would say that the authenticity of collectively these reports, especially of, of pre-Islamic and early Islamic uh, uh, history, is I think that the outlines the outlines are there, and I would second uh, Fred Donner's uh, uh, sort of kernel of truth thesis that there's a kernel of truth to the you know the things that I just mentioned, but the details I don't believe are necessarily true, and I think that they tend to they tend to reflect the mood, the sectarianism, or the uh, the, the tribal conflict, or the shirobiya, uh, you know, all this sort of one-upmanship, the showmanship of later generations, of Umayyad versus Abbasid, of um, Persian versus, versus Arab, of Muslim versus Christian versus Jewish, right? This stuff was intense, and it continued for centuries, and it affected the details of these stories. But I do believe that, uh, you know, the Quran could have only emerged from where the tradition said it emerged in the time period in which it said it emerged. And, you know, if we were, again, being, if we were if, if, unconvinced about absolutely everything, of course, there's famous work by Behnam Sadri and Mohsen Gudarzi and uh, others uh, who, uh, before him, of course, Kheret Puin, uh, folks who do um, radiocarbon dating. And, you know, the more and more we test the uh, Hejazi manuscripts that uh, were preserved, at least for the longest time, in Sana'a Yemen, the older and older they get. So you, you know, the, the most liberal uh, carbon dating would take you to the early 8th century, like maybe 705 or 710. Um, but you know, you there's good reason to think that you have you have you have a Quran, you have some sort of printed text or written text uh, by the 650s, maybe, right? Maybe even 640s. Uh, you put a question mark on there, but it's a very small one. So I think that we can uh, take the outlines of the story, but the details and, you know, who was where and what they said and who beat themselves in the chest, that I think is, um, you know, we have to we have to read between the lines. Understood. And what are some of the competing views of the origin of the Quran by Western scholars? Right. So, wow. Um, how much time you got? But let's let let me try and sort of distill them into sort of two or three groups. So we have the traditional narrative of what the Quran is, where it comes from. And we have among Western scholars, uh, we have to acknowledge and sort of uh, pay respect to the classical German, you know, Bismarckian or post-Bismarckian, you know, academic uh, uh, enterprise. Uh, the Germans really did set the standard for the Western Academy of the study of Quran because they are the ones who set the standard for philology and the study of religion, and then the study of uh, various other disciplines. And studying the Quran was just another sort of card in the deck. So, you know, you have uh, in the beginning, in the beginning, it's 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 very haphazard. Uh, you have, of course, Abraham Geiger, who himself as a sort of very liberal minded Jew or sort of a reformist Jew is uh, writing in a European context where Judaism is more progressive than Christianity and is writing about the sources of religion, you know, very, very sort of secular approach to religion. He writes, of course, his book on uh, Vashat uh, Muhammad Auf, Judentum uh, Aufgenommen. So, I mean, this is, um, you have this work on what has Muhammad uh, borrowed from Judaism. That's, you know, some people take this as sort of the beginning of the study of, of the Quran. We may debate that. Um, and, of course, it, it's, it's, not, it's not really a methodo- methodologically sound 
shall we say, uh, beginning. Uh, but uh, Geiger is brilliant. He made a ton of good points. And he made a great deal of uh, connection between the Quranic text and rabbinic uh, Jewish tradition, which is undeniable. I mean, the Quran itself says that, right, um, uh, to, to a large extent. And, of course, after that, you have um, uh, also in, in German, you know, the Geschichte des Korans by um, Theodor Noldeke, uh, which is a classic until today. And, of course, it's volumes later on by his, uh, his successors, uh, culminating, we could say, in Angelica Neuwirth's research today. And we could call this maybe the Berlin School. And this, it, I, I would argue that over the years, um, you mean this, this uh, body of literature, the Berlin School, should we say, is built upon uh, Islamic tradition and certainly looking at uh, what we can call chronology, the Meccan versus Medinan surahs and anything, you know, the Nasuch and Mansuch, uh, not as much. But looking at the sort of the, the basics, the precepts of Ulum al-Qur'an and especially the Makki and Madani, um, they form the foundations, I would say, for the Western study of uh, the Qur'an. Um, and, um, you know, in the, in the uh, we can call it maybe the Berlin School, which persists until today. We have, uh, you know, uh, um, Nikolai Sinai, of course, is sort of maybe the cutting edge on this. He has a terrific new book in German and in English on, you know, the... the text historical approach to the Quran. It's uh, that's not exactly its name, but it's a it's a terrific book. That's probably one one uh, thread which we might maybe call the traditional um, uh, school or the traditional approach to the study of Quran in the Western Academy. You also have, shall we say, maybe a skeptical approach, skeptical maybe slash revisionist. But if we stick with the word skeptical, uh, we could go all the way back to the 1970s in London with uh, John Wansborough. And his numerous students, all again luminaries, you know, uh, you have uh, Patricia Crone and uh, Michael Cook, Gerald Hawting, Andrew Rippin. All of these scholars are, you know, they, they have a very different, they have r relatively different views on the Quran itself and early Islam uh, and Muhammad the prophet. But if we sort of look at the London school versus the Berlin school, they're very different. And um, there's a tendency among uh, the second school to to look at the Quran not as a whole, but as pieces, and uh, to perhaps even consider that the Quran did not emerge from this sort of sleepy backwater that we consider, uh, you know, Mecca or even or even Yathrib, right? But rather, John Wansbro and uh, his students, uh, Cronin and Cook, as you'll know, uh, in their in their book Hagarism and in John Wansbro's uh, Quranic studies, proposed uh, a later um, crystallization of the text. And that uh, the Quran did not actually emerge from 7th century Hejaz, but maybe 8th century Palestine or 9th century, you know, at up uh, with with the onset of, uh, you know, either more interaction with Jews and Christians or with the onset of just, you know, the arrival of paper and writing all this literature. So the, the, the argument there is, you know, that the Quran was written when all the other texts were in the Tabaqat and the Maghazi and the Akbar and the Hadim, that it comes from the same time. And this, of course, uh, I mean, it's largely been disproven. And again, Fred Donner's book on the narratives of uh, Islamic origins has has done a lot of the heavy lifting in that regard. But then, you know, I mean, Patricia Crone herself, uh, before her passing in 2016, has, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say recanted in a, in a Catholic sense, but she's really rolled back a lot of her uh, claims that, you know, that, you know, so you know, Abu Bakr didn't exist or that the Quran was... Uh, you know, somehow crystallized for sure in this location and not in the Hejaz itself. And um, she did roll that. Uh, she did roll back a lot of her her statements. Um, 
And I think she was a brilliant historian. She contributed a great deal to the field. Um, there are others like Alfred Louis de Premier and French uh, writing about, uh, again, you know, his skeptical approach again to the Quran. So there is a lot, there's a lot of skepticism that continues. Uh, and it also, I think I would say, it created a, a new skeptical school, namely that in Saarbrück in Germany, the Inara group, whose most famous example, of course, is uh, uh, Christoph Luxemburg, which is a pseudonym. And his book, again in German, the Syro Aramish Lesart des Quran, right? That's the Syro Aramaic reading of the Quran. And again, just you know, a 30-second nutshell. Uh, he claims in there that the Quran is not, you know, an Arabic text from 7th century Hejaz, nor is it a book written by Jews or Christians, you know, in you know, 8th and 9th century, you know, Palestine or Mesopotamia, but that it is in fact an older text. Uh, which is Christian in nature, emerging in Syriac or in Karshuni, which is uh, uh, Arabic written in Syriac script. Uh, and he had, he had, you know, there was, it echoes Günther Lüling, also a German scholar, uh, writing about sort of the, the assuming or, or uh, hypothesizing at least that uh, the Quran is originally a Christian text. So, and again, those are, uh, it, Luxembourg, I, I mean, I've, I've, I have to use I have to at least acknowledge, you know, his contribution, which is very problematic. And it's I think a lot of a lot of the problems with Luxembourg and the Luxembourg school or the Saarbrücken school is just how extreme they are. I mean, they make a lot of good points, but, you know, the Quran is not a no, it's not a church prayer book. You don't go to the pews and pick up the Quran. Um, and the idea that there's some sort of conspiracy that, you know, the Mufassirun or the Islamic scholars somehow deliberately or accidentally sort of misconstrued all this. Syriac text and turn into this Arabic text is also sort of laughable, uh, but he makes a lot of great points. And so, you know, you if it's it's a shame that uh, uh, scholars become ideologically driven and go to an extreme. Uh, anyway, so that's those are some examples of schools. I want to also add one more thing because you mentioned I think in the West or Western Academy, there are a number of shall we say scholars of a of a liberal background of a Muslim liberal background. Of which, uh, you know, in my first book, I focus especially on the Arab Arab liberal school, and it includes uh, uh, folks like uh, Nasr Hamid Abu Zaid, uh, Muhammad Arkun, uh, you know, Hassan Hanafi. These folks who work in different areas, you know, Quran studies and, and philosophy and things like that. Just again, luminaries, really brilliant, and uh, their approach to the Quran also is very, very good. And they're 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 very much influenced by the Western sort of discourse. But they're they're you know they're umbilically connected to the classical corpus of Arabic and Islamic literature, and I found I found them to be throughout my career just sort of inspirational you know like they're they're brilliant and their work is is great, um, and I tend to you don't have that extreme in their work, and I, I you know I sort of look at them not all of them but especially when it comes to their academic work not their when they become political that's separate but in their academic work I really look at them as role models they're able to take the tools of the Western Academy and take the the rote wisdom and the weight uh, of the of the Arabic tradition and really publish some great works like uh, uh, Abu Zaid's Mafum al Nas and the concept of the text it's a terrific book just sort of brings everything together anyway that's so there there's all there's always new publications coming out uh, there's a lot coming out on French also there's Mohamed Amir Mouazi and uh, Guillaume D have edited the Le Courant des Historiens so this is the of course the uh, the historians Quran uh, or the you know the Quran of the historians uh, which uh, I have not again penetrated all of its pages, but it's a terrific uh, three-volume collection. Which probably, as far as being sort of a, a collection, is is the newest, latest, and greatest publication in Quranic studies in the West. 
And it brings together sort of a little bit of everything I've just mentioned. It brings together scholars who are, uh, you know, uh, skeptical, traditional, um, you know, revisionist, uh, liberal, you know, all, all, etc. All these different uh, impulses, and it looks to be really a, a terrific work. And there's a, there's a lot of work ahead, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff that uh, that's come out as well. Kind of based on what you were saying, I mean, what would you say is um, kind of the the current if there is a consensus amongst Western scholars about the origins of the Quran, I mean, do we still, is it leading more towards the traditional understanding of the Quran's origins, or do we still have different theories, you know, the Quran maybe predates the Prophet or uh, stuff like this? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I deliberated about this question a little bit, you know, the state of the field. And, you know, we have a couple of, uh, you know, I, I know that Fred Donner, Gabriel Reynolds, other folks have written about the state of the field. You'll have collections in, uh, you know, the Cambridge uh, Companions of the Quran, the forthcoming Routledge Companions of the Quran. There's um, within the Encyclopedia of the Quran. There's all sorts of perspectives you'll get on the state of the field. Um, Andrew Rippon, before his passing, also uh, wrote, wrote about this as well. And... I can only give you my perspective, but I can tell you, I'm, I'm going to give you my mantra, and this is, I'm going to, you know, sort of put it forth and stand by it. And that's the, that's the mantra of the pendulum. What's, what's going on and what's been going on within Quranic studies in the West and in conversation, like I said, with various uh, impulses and amazing colleagues in, in, uh, in Muslim majority uh, countries is the pendulum swinging. And maybe, you know, as early as 1978 or 79 with, with, with Cronin and Cook, you know, all the way till, you know, the uh, D and, and Moise's publication in 2019. You know, you have a good 40 years where the pendulum is swinging really widely. And what, I, what do I mean by that? I mean to say that, you know, at, at one end of the spectrum is the claim based on tradition that the, you know, Quran is, you know, it comes... It was. It comes from Mecca in the seventh century. It was collected by Uthman and published by him, and blah blah blah. And at the other end, you have other extreme, which is the Quran emerged among you know Samaritan Jews in the north, you know, in the eighth century, or alternately among you know Christian Arabs or Syriac-speaking Christians, you know, in the sixth century or earlier in you know somewhere else in in, in Arabia. So those were all experiments. And scholars were testing the text. They were actually, you know, they were they were going through the motions of scholarship. That's what you do in the academy, is you sort of have a hypothesis and you have these tools of especially text criticism, historical criticism, form criticism for uh, John Wansborough. Uh, you know, you take the tools, for example, of biblical studies, of, you know, the, the multiple authorship and the sources of various uh, pericopes and and, and, you know, radiocarbon dating and uh, paleography, you take all these tools which you've been using for over a century in these other areas and you apply it to the Quran. And what we've gotten is a pendulum swinging all over the place. And the reason is because Quranic studies in the past 40 years, it's, it's, it's a nascent, it's a nascent uh, discipline. It's new. So because it's new, it, you know, perhaps suffered um, from a little bit of, uh, you know, unruly, uh, scholarship, uh, which I think is terrific, by the way. I mean, I think I think the scholarship itself was was fascinating, and, and uh, the minds behind it were were worthy of of the of the readers' undivided attention, and uh, and and are worthy of uh, you know the nuance and and meticulous detail that were put into it. But you just have all these you know sort of wily theories going in different directions, and I think what's happening over time, and I think 
after 2000 with the publication of Luxembourg's book, so somewhere midway in this 40-year time period, is uh, the pendulums will start swinging. I mean, it continues swinging, but over time it starts swinging, I hope, a little bit less wildly. You know, you have the Inara group, they're incredibly active. They've published something like five or maybe more uh, uh, volumes, the first of which is the Dunkel Anfang, right? This sort of mysterious origins of Islam, like the origins of this of this religion, the civilization are mysterious. Maybe you can't trust the sources. So, and they continue to publish, fine, you know? Um, but I think outside of them that the pendulum is swinging less and less wildly. And I'll use an example of two recent publications. Uh, one is uh, Holger Zelenton's The Quran's Legal Culture and his forthcoming and his and his and his other work also. He has also an edited volume and other work that he's working on. Um, and it looks really at the Quran as an Arabian text, because it's written in Arabic after all, but that it is, you know, it's it's networked. It's uh, it's latched onto, it belongs to, it emerges from, you know, Judaism and Christianity. I mean, if I if I told uh, any Christian on the street that, you know, um, Christianity comes from Judaism, it began as a sect of Judaism, uh, you know, unless they were really, really uninformed about their history, they'd be like, yeah, of course. So I think that now, again, after the pendulum swinging so wildly, this is this is a, a, a an assertion for both believers and for academics and, you know, for, and both for those who are, who are both that Islamic Siv beginning, especially with the Quran is it's, it's a text, which is, shall we say, uh, linguistically Arabic, but, you know, culturally belongs to this, you know, post biblical Jewish Christian environment. And that this is the middle ground. And that on this middle ground, you can talk about Syriac. You can talk about, uh, Hadith. You can, walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, so uh, Holger's book is great in that regard. The other book I'll mention is my own. Uh, you know, I made every effort in my book on the Quran and the Aramaic gospel traditions to demonstrate, and I mean, I spent 50 pages just talking about sources and nothing else, <laughs> um, to discuss absolutely all the sources, um, again, as current until 2011, and uh, that you can have a sober and a methodologically sound study of the Quran, which uh, which uses, for example, this the Syriac church fathers, but at the same time also uses, you know, the Sirah ibn Ishaq. And that by reading both of these bodies of literature, just for example, uh, you know, reading between the lines and uh, being careful and being critical and cutting out bits which don't, which you believe are not authentic, that's the method and that you proceed from there and the idea that throwing out a million pages worth of uh you know uh uh arabic text discussing you know the quran because because of its its uh political or sectarian nature i think is it's too extreme and at the same time those colleagues who i think refuse to look at the post-biblical nature the, the the late antique literature especially i would say syriac christian literature that is really underpinning so much of the Quran's discussion and its language and its imagery and its, you know, its sejah, its poetic nature uh, is also misguided. So we're, we're at we're at this point, which I think is is terrific. And we could have only gotten here with the pendulum swinging so wildly. We could have only gotten here with a great deal of sort of uh, uh, debate and argumentation and, and sure, you know, uh, maybe it, we're a little bit bruised and bloodied for it, but we come out with, I think, 
a better prospect for a consensus rather than a false consensus, which is again under uh, I think Andrew Rippin and, and, and Fred Donner and others have have claimed that we're under this false consensus that you know this idea that you know that Mekki and Madani, for example, are precisely what they are, and I don't accept that they are. Uh, that that that's that's part of a false consensus that you know we need to we need to study we need to study um, this entire body of literature beginning with the Quran and its commentaries later on critically. And I give credit to Andrew Rupin uh, for doing that, I think, in the Western Academy, probably the best. So I, I think I'm more optimistic moving forward that minus certain outliers, there is a common ground. You know, our radiocarbon dating says the Quran is from the 7th century. We have the tools to read the body of Arabic literature as secondary literature and to read between the lines. And we have now, you know, enormous resources for... Uh, you know, Syriac and Greek and, you know, Coptic uh, texts that were not at our disposal earlier and that, you know, that the early traditional Muslim scholars didn't have access to. So we, uh, there, there is every indication that future studies in the Quran will be better and better and that the pendulum will stop swinging so wildly. I mean, that can't continue. It just, it doesn't make any sense. But, but that the, the path that we took since the 1970s was necessary to get to where we are today. Understood. Thank you so much for that. So, Professor, before we kind of move on to the, the meat of our conversation, I wanted to set the stage and ask you about something that I think will come up quite frequently. What is late antiquity? We hear this kind of thrown around a lot. What is late antiquity? Uh, some of the major peoples, events, languages, religions, texts, etc. Late antiquity, well, we have to... First and foremost, I mean, it's 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 a term which was coined, right? Peter Brown, maybe you know, 70s and 80s, uh, famous historian, uh, coined this phrase called late antiquity. Um, and uh, as far if you know, according to my understanding, it refers really to the time of uh, the great empires sort of in decline. Uh, and the idea was looking at the third century and, you know, among the Romans, especially, you know, there's. Uh, there's the crisis of the third century, um, Emperor Diocletian sort of enters the picture and there's, you know, he sets up the, the, the tetrarchy, which it doesn't, I mean, it helps for a while, but um, uh, the crisis of the third century sort of continues. And uh, throughout the course of the, cent the you know, the, 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 the continuing centuries, um, there's also, uh, shall we say, a great deal of... Uh, uh, conflict between the Romans and uh, the Persians, and especially in the you know the Parthians and the Sassanids. So people tend to look at this time period as a period of I guess decline, conflict, and certain you know certain internal changes, um, uh, certain systemic changes that result at the end in uh, maybe the Arab conquests, uh, you know, uh, or even some people take it as far as Charlemagne. So it's this it's this sort of no man's land between what we would describe as you know, ancient empires and an ancient time period and the medieval. Um, I'm not probably the, the best person to give a textbook definition on it. But, you know, there are a couple of things. There are a couple of very important points about late antiquity that your listeners should should know. So late antiquity is looking you know, at the late ancient period. It's looking at these empires of Rome and Persia after their heyday um at least that's that's you know in, in very broad brushstrokes um and a very important thing is that while 
if we can say, you know, these Greek speaking and Persian speaking uh, uh, empires are sort of um, in conflict with one another, or, uh, you know, there's the, the, the ebb, of, ebb and flow of power, that all the while, this is the, this is the time period, shall we say, between maybe the third century and the seventh century, something like that, maybe a little bit earlier. That's when this Syriac Christian tradition, when rabbinic Judaism, and you can even argue a sort of Arab identity starts to form and and crystallizes, in fact. Uh, so it's very interesting because, okay, so you have all these Greeks and Persians and they're in charge, but over the course of, of, of this period of history, this is when, you know, uh, Syriac speakers and Arabic speakers enter into the fold and uh, Arabs, of course, are known as sort of these the, the policemen of the Near East, and they're hired by either side, uh, especially uh, in this regard, are tribes like Ghassan, Lacham, Kinda, uh, the Quda'a, right? And, and, and others that are in, in essence sort of uh, hired uh, or, um, you know, they're, they're the federati. They are tribes bound by treaty with Rome. And the same thing, of course, with Persia as well. So they enter into history. Late antiquity, is the time when, for example, Syriac speakers and Arab tribesmen enter into history in, in this way. We have records, of course, of them prior to this, but uh, the, the sort of critical mass occurs during this time, which is why scholars of, of, of Islam and, and Quran latched onto the idea of late antiquity. Oh, well, the Quran is a text of late antiquity. And of course, in this regard, um, Angelica Neubert and, and um, that uh, co colleagues uh, emerging from that Berlin context look at late antiquity as a sort of incubation period for the Quran itself. And it's one that has, I think, largely within mainstream Quranic studies been accepted, that the Quran is a text of late antiquity, that the Quran is subject to the conflicts of Roman Persia, that it's subject to the crystallization of Judaism and Christianity in, in, these, in these ways, in this tradition that it's subject, in fact, to the rise of Arab uh, nativism and you know, identity and um, sort of a coming, building of community. So that's, that's why late antiquity is important. And its outlines are always debated. You have someone like Garth Fowden, uh, a scholar in, in Cambridge, who sort of argues against it, uh, saying, oh, well, you know, you can sort of look at you know, his book on before and after Muhammad, looks at sort of a thousand years, like, before before Muhammad, to, you know, like probably about from zero to about a thousand CE as a, you know, a functioning, you know, sort of measuring stick. So it's important for everyone to realize that, you know, uh, as historians and as scholars, we sort of come up with artificial uh, historical time periods. Um, and this one, late antiquity, which is it's coined as late antiquity, could, it could be called the, the late ancient period or something else. It is has been accepted more or less in the Western Academy as the incubation period within which the Quran emerged and about which there is lots of discussion and debate. Okay. And then now I guess we'll move on to some, some of these questions. Are there Near Eastern precedents for some aspects of the Quran, whether they be words, stories, or entire concepts that we find in the Quran? So the quick answer is, is yes. So I would frame it a little bit differently, right? What happens is, and I mentioned this, of course, in my, in my first book, that Within the Near East, beginning during its most ancient period, throughout you know the periods of antiquity, late antiquity, you know it's 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 medieval and early modern and even present day uh, in, in, in incarnations. The the traditions, the identity, the culture, the genealogy of the peoples and the, the especially their texts, 
whether oral or written, are composite. So this is really important for the, the listener to, uh, to absorb. That every, every book written from the beginning until the end builds on the book before it. It's a very sort of basic analogy. So if you're looking at, you know, what's the earliest piece of literature? I mean, uh, you know, the work I'm, the, the project I'm working on right now looks at uh, a female power in late antique Arabia. And our uh, earliest author is, in fact, the uh, daughter of Sargon the Great, right? The Mesopotamian king and uh, his daughter Inadwana, right? I guess I don't have her dates right now, but uh, our first author of history that we have by name is a woman. And, you know, she's uh, writing in, uh, in, in an old Semitic dialect based on Akkadian, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, I forget, Neo-Babylonian or Assyrian. But, you know, she she writes as a priestess of this goddess Inanna. And those stories that she writes and poems and myths are based on the agricultural history and origins of ancient Sumeria. Um, which is what we would describe maybe as, as Arab or even the Sawad, right, uh, in, in, in Iraq today. So there are various myths and astrological symbols and figures, whether it's Gilgamesh or Inanna or Enkidu or all these ancient, ancient figures that represent something immediate and relevant to an agricultural society. Now, with the onset of time, because the beginnings of writing really began, one, in ancient Sumeria, and two, in ancient Egypt. The progressive and subsequent cultures, be they, you know, I don't know, the Canaanites or the Arameans or the Arabs or, you know, uh, what have you, they inherited, of course, the uh, the myths and the stories and the, these figures and symbols from ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. And just with every progressive generation, again, you have the writing of what you describe maybe as the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, very much influenced by ancient Near Eastern stories. And uh, after that, of course, the New Testament, which is influenced by, you know, of course, it contains within the, the, the message or the memory of the Old Testament and, you know, progressive layers of, you know, Platonic philosophy and things of that nature. And of course, after that, you have the Quran which again builds upon Old Testament, New Testament, and you know considers itself to be this sort of uh, final testament. Only that, that applies only to Muslims, of course, right? Uh, I don't want to offend anyone. But, you know, again, it's influenced by the, I would say the post-biblical commentaries and discussions of its day. So it's important for your listeners to realize this is how texts are written. This is how traditions are born. This is how wisdom is passed on from one generation to another. And we see even echoes of that in something like the word, like a word like uh, like Sunnah, for example. Right? It, it, it is a passed on tradition in the Near East. It's a place where people, they, we don't get rid of anything old. You keep everything. Right. And you just keep it sort of it's reincarnated over and over again. So in a, in a broad sense, when the Quran is talking about Abraham or or Ishmael, or uh, Yusuf, or Moses, or Jesus, or the Virgin Mary, or um, you know any number of of, uh, of realities or people, whether it's paradise and hellfire. Maybe we can talk about that later as well. It, every single one of these uh, 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 
substances is pregnant with the symbolism of the past. Every single one of them. You can write a book on every single one of them and it still wouldn't be sufficient. So the idea, in fact, we have to really, we have to change the way we think, uh, uh, you know, naturally. I mean, that's, let, let me rephrase that again. Naturally speaking, this is how texts are written. So we have to actually unlearn a lot of what we, uh, what we think is natural, that the Quran is sort of singular and it has, it, you know, it only has one source, which is, the, you know, the, the heavens. God speaks through the Prophet Muhammad and then it's there. Okay, that's, that's fine. Uh, but then you have to also realize that Muhammad is a historical figure and the, every book has an author, an editor, uh, you know, a printer, there's ink, there's paper, there's, um, there's a patron who's paying money. And we tend not to think in historical terms at all when we talk about the Quran. And that's the problem is actually we have been, and I, we, in this case, I'm talking about myself, um, as someone who comes from a Muslim background, we're not told that that's the origin of the Quran. We're told that the origin, again, is, you know, as we were told about uh, God and the angel Gabriel and about Muhammad. And I think that is necessary for a confessional group. We need to have our stories, but we have to, we have to acknowledge history. And that's the part where I think we can do better. Honestly, I think I think that and I'm, I'm putting myself in that category. I think that we can and do and we're doing I mean, we, we as 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 time progresses and the resources that we have and the internet it's just it's unavoidable just how how uh, illuminated people are there are of course counter reactions to this as well but the quran is a composite text that it, you know builds upon the wisdom of the past and uh, i would say that if we consider for example the greek new testament to be uh, highly influenced by uh, platonic or aristotelian especially should we say platonic um, um, uh, philosophy and other other traditions then i would say that the quran is really um in dialogue and in discussion uh with syriac christian literature and rabbinic uh literature as well would you mind giving us some examples about you know words or stories or concepts that we find in the quran that perhaps have their 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 origin elsewhere yes so actually um i'll, I'll say this there there are a couple of great resources you have uh, some some antiquated ones, which are a little bit unruly, but you know a lot a lot of great information. You have, of course, uh, Alphonse, Alphonse Mingana has an article on the um, you know the Syriac underpinnings of certain phrases in the Quran, and you have, of course, um, Arthur Jeffrey's uh, foreign vocabulary of the Quran. In my first book on Quran and the Aramaic gospel traditions, I have a bunch of appendices, which you don't even have to read the book; you can just look at the appendices, and it has those equivalences, shall we say, and um, there are, I, in my studies, I've, I've broken up the uh, relationship, shall we say, between the Arabic Quran and the uh, Syriac and Christian Palestinian Aramaic Gospels um, into, into different categories. So the first one being uh, whole pericopes or even uh, almost like a chapter, right, that uh, you find in the Quran, which you also, it's, it's a retelling of a chapter or pericope you find in the Gospels. Now, I want to mention, of course, that I chose the Gospels uh, to compare with the Quran because it's the nearest, you know, it's the nearest sort of scripture to the Quran itself, the sort of canonical scripture. And I chose the Aramaic language, namely Syriac dialect and uh, CPA, because those are the dialects, you know, most in conversation with the Arabs at that time. So that's that's you know the method the method behind why I, I chose those texts uh, to study with the Quran. And one thing, for example, to consider is uh, the story of 
to those on the right hand and the left hand of God at the judgment. And this occurs, this image is very powerful, it occurs in Matthew 25. I won't read the whole thing for you, but, you know, little, little bits and pieces of it says, you know, then when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he'll sit upon the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered for him and he'll separate one from another as a shepherd who separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep at his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And the king will say to those who are the right hand, come, you know, you're blessed, etc., etc. And that whole passage, it's so, uh, should we say, pregnant with meaning and symbolism. And especially the Syriac phrases, which, which I'm not messing, which I'm not mentioning right now, are in conversation with. Let me pull this up over here. Quran uh, 39, Surah Safat, I believe. No, it's not Safat. Is it Zumar? Uh, Surah 39, um, verses 67 to 75, where it begins, and they did not uh, honor uh, God to the extent of His true honor, uh, for all the earth and is in His grasp, and the heavens are rolled up in His right hand. Glorified is he over that which he over which they ascribe and the trumpet will be blown so that uh, whoever is in the heavens and the earth was struck down except for those whom God will they'll be blown again. This passage continues and you have again uh, those at the right hand and the left hand and at the end of both passages you have the uh, angels praising God and going around his throne and the sequence of dividing up the nations into right and left. And the uh, actual words that are used and, uh, you know, the culmination of the angels sort of going around God's throne. That's, that's the end of time. That's it. You know, like everything is done. It is something that I argue is uh, a, a, an, intertext, an intertext or intertextual dialogue between the two texts. I'm trying to see here if there are maybe some words uh, within this large uh, passage. I make some analogies, for example, like in, uh, in the Aramaic of, of the Gospels, you have Amin uh, Lakun, right? Uh, you know, truly I say to you, you know, Jesus says this a lot in the Gospels, and we have in the Quran, you know, Kul Innama, say indeed. There's a certain rhetorical parallelism between the two, or you know, Al Haq Akul, truly I say to you, Amin Lakun also. There's also parallels between in Hellfire again between Al uh, Kafirun, the rejectors or unbelievers, and Akel uh, Qarsa, and this is in Syriac meaning. Literally, those who sort of who backbite, or you know, those those debiters. The extent to which you know you can see this it requires you really to sort of do the the reading. In Hellfire, I'll just jump to another because there's so many examples. I'll just I'll pose a few to you. There is the passage in Luke 16, 22 to 31, between Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man, and it begins. You know, this happened that a poor man died, and the angels carried him to the bosom of Abraham. In addition, the rich man died also and was buried. And while he was tormented in Sheol, I'm going to skip a little bit. So Abraham receives him in heaven and says, okay. And then the, the, the rich man uh, goes to Sheol. I mean, we, we can consider that hell, maybe not. Uh, Bart Ehrman would have issue with us. But he says, so he called out in a loud voice and said, my father Abraham had mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and moisten my tongue. For behold, I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said to him, my son, remember that you received your fortune in life as Lazarus, his misfortune. But now behold, his, he is in comfort. He is comfortable here and you are tormented. Besides the, all these things, a great chasm is, is, is placed between us and you. And it continues from there. That corresponds, I argue, to Surah 7 and Surah Al-Araf, I believe, verse 50. And the people of Hellfire called out to the people of Paradise, pour upon us some water or from that which you 
uh, God has supplied you. And they said, God has forbidden it upon uh, the rebellious ones. Those are examples of pericopes. And again, I, I cite all the, I cite the language in there as well. But there are various uh, examples. Um, you know, uh, one theme that, that is common between the Syriac Gospels and uh, Quran is that the righteous, the poor, the downtrodden are seated on thrones at the end of time, right? Uh, and you find this in Matthew 19, uh, 28 to 30, Mark 9, 35. And you find it also, uh, you know, you find it in other Gospels as well. And you find it, of course, in the Quran, uh, Surah 83, 29 to 36, and also uh, Surah 76, 12 to 27. And one example would be, so Surah 76, and he rewarded them on account of what they endured with gardens and silk, resting there upon uh, seats. They do not see their, uh, the heat of the sun or cold. A, a vessel made of silver and cups made of crystal will be passed uh, around them. And they will be given there to drink a cup whose flavor is ginger. All this imagery we get largely from the Syriac Christian fathers. I want to give the reader other examples that they can hear. So among the categories of uh, relationship between the Aramaic Gospels and the Arabic Quran, you have, of course, you know, sons of God, okay, and you have the phrase sons of God again, Abnaullah. You the house of uh, offerings of God, Bayt Qurban right? You have in the way of God, fi sabilillah. And that's really, really interesting because when you think of jihad fi sabilillah, this tends to be boxed into, you know, okay, let's study jihad now. Or, you know, what is the jihadist discourse of Islam? I argue in my book that jihad fi sabilillah has a lot to do with um, this sort of early institution, which we find echoes uh, uh, of in the Gospels, for taking care of poor people, basically. You have other things, uh, the hardness of heart, kashut lavkun, right? Uh, Matthew 19, 8. Uh, your hearts will be hardened, yomakasat kulubukum, right? And that's in Quran uh, 274. Sa- a sign from heaven, atam in shmaya, right? A sign from the Lord, I am in Rabbihi. Uh, kingdom of heaven, malkuta dashmaya, the kingdom of heavens and earth, malakuta samawati wal ard. The kingdom of heaven, malkuta dalaha, the kingdom of heavens and the earth, malakuta samawati wal ard again. Um, there are so many examples, and uh, you have also among, for example, verbal couplets right repent and believe to tuba wahim sorry tubu wahimenu right and you have in the quran taba wa amana wa amila salihat and this is how the phrase goes of course and the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins you have in 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 the quran repent to god a clear repentance perhaps your lord may blot out your sins and you have various lexica sort of just you know words um, you'll have a uh, glutton, akel, or the the one who devours food, yakulun ta'am. You have the marketplace, the shukha, right? Or the marketplace is aswaq, prophets and sincere men, or uh, prophets and apostles, right? Nabi Yawashli was diqe, the prophets and sincere, right? You have an nabiyuna was siddiqeen, or an nabiyuna was siddiqoon, in the nominative. The elect whom he elected, Gabi the Gaba, right? And you merely chose a few. Ijtaba, or you know, the, again, ijtaba is is uh, I would say a heavily Christianized term, which enters into the lexicon as well. Even ijtabeina, min manhadeina, ijtabeina. The elect Gabio again, ijtabik, um, and his elect. There's a, there's a lot about ijtaba, uh, and you, again among the, the scribes, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees are sort of the enemy number one in the Gospels. Safre or safraye. Um, and uh, in the Quran, you have, of course, the example of 
كمثل يحمل يحمل أسفار أسفار books uh, coming again from a particularly Jewish or Christian context is it's 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 this story is told in a it's actually mocking the Jews but it actually comes from from my understand from a, a pew team a pew it's a sort of a, a little speech a Jewish speech that actually means something completely different and I think Sherry Lowen has demonstrated this in her research there are several examples there are also calcs so words that are just sort of directly translated you have the meek which in aramaic is mkike and in quran you have the downtrodden okay al mustadafun al mustadafun fil ard prophets nabiye hakime safre we have in arabic you have rusul scribes and pharisees safre wa prisha you have in the quran you have uh, scribes and the priests ahbaruhum wa rahbanuhum right this is in surah 9 verse 31 uh, for my sake metulathi this is you know in 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 the gospels you do things for for jesus sake and in, in the Quran, it's a fi sabili, right? In my way, the the goal in that in in the Quran is God with a capital G, whereas in the Gospels, it's it's Jesus who you know is is in Christian theology, of course, uh, the same. And you have other phrases, some of which I've mentioned, but um, you know, a mustard seed, fetta the khardala, right? The weight of an atom. You have misqala dara. Um, you have to say the same same symbolism there. The words, you know, misbah, mishkat, uh, siraj, uh, all of these words are, are, you know, in dialogue with uh, Syriac uh, equivalences. You have other, other, other uh, calcs, by the way. You have things like the word melta. You have his word kalima, kalimatuhu, right? Uh, it's been translated straight. Um, nations, amma, right? There's multitude, zumar, and again, it's the nations at the end of of, of the world. You also have rhyme schemes. Uh, I don't think I have enough time to get into that but uh even the quran the idea that the quran is you know musajja uh, or that the saja is a, an arabic phenomenon of ancient arabia needs revision because the syriac christian literature which the quran is sort of you know through my research it's almost every page on almost every single verse it's in discuss it's in discussion with post-biblical literature especially um, with the Syriac and with uh, uh, rabbinic, uh, sort of Jewish Aramaic. So those texts rhyme as well, <laughs> right? So you have uh, the the memre and the madrashe, the sort of uh, the homiletic literature, which is either to be sung or to be read out as like poetry, sometimes as a group, sometimes individually. That's like exactly how the Quran is written, right? So we need to we need to review. Uh, we need to revise our assumptions as far as that's concerned. And anyway, I mentioned that in, in the book. And then you have, of course, rhetorical devices like repetition, so internal repetition. It says in Matthew and Luke, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Wailkun safra or safraye, waprishe nasbai bape. And the Quran it says, Woe unto the disbelievers on that day. Wailun yoma etilil mukazibin. Right? Surah 77. This repetition is it's just it's it's almost lockstep it's not coincidental let me just go back and check if there's uh, i know that i skipped over a lot of the larger examples i mentioned one example of heaven one example of hell uh, but there are, are a lot more so i'll um i'll give you also now that we're in the thick of it i'll give you also my top-down version of syriac in the quran i wrote the article for the encyclopedia of the quran which you'll find but the syriac of course is is not it doesn't figure that importantly into uh, classical Islamic tradition, although the classical authors did cite Syriac, and they were not 
sort of shy to do so. And I can speak about that if you'd like and elaborate upon that a little bit later. But to go back again to Syriac and the Quran, one very, very important contributor to Syriac literature, of course, is Ephraim the Syrian, who died in 373. So way, be way before Muhammad the Prophet, and whose work was edited by Edmund Beck and who was picked up by Alphonse Mingana and then Christoph Luxemburg. And, you know, they started arguing all sorts of things. But, you know, his hymns on paradise and his hymns on you know, the Virgin Mary, and his, his hymns are incredibly, they're incredibly important for the student and the scholar of the Quran. You absolutely have to read Ephraim. And from there, you start reading other literature. But if you, you know, if, if I had to give some advice, if you're curious, either because you're skeptical of what I'm saying or you're really interested in, in furthering your knowledge, um, you can just Google Ephraim the Syrian hymns and you'll find a great deal of his hymns translated. And you can find, uh, you know, you can find the original Syriac as well, but then that requires a little bit of study. But if you start with the translation, you'll find quite a lot that informs your knowledge from the Quran, from what you've learned in the Quran, about paradise or about certain images of Jesus and Mary. Now, it's not just him, but uh, I would I would start with him. And one thing I wanted to mention is, let me mention something about paradise. He has, of course, um, a great deal of discussion about paradise. And Ephraim is a church father, and he is writing based on his conviction and his knowledge. And he writes in his hymns that he is almost shy, almost quivering before the sight of God because he is describing paradise, you know? He is describing, you know, what we would describe as ghaybiyat, um, you know, alam al-ghayb, al-akhira even, right? If you want to put it, uh, how can you describe something like that? And Ephraim acknowledges that he is the author of what Syriac Christians will know as paradise because he is somehow, he has this spiritual connection. He is pious enough to write about it and uh so what does he say right he says all sorts of things he says in his hymns that so the children of light dwell on the heights of paradise and beyond the abyss they espy the the, the rich man he too as he raises his eyes beholds lazarus and calls out to abraham to have pity on him but abraham was so full of pity who even had pity on sodom has no pity yonder for him who showed no pity that is the rich man this place despises and, and spurned the denizens of paradise those who burn in Gehenna hungrily desire their torment doubles at the sight of the fountains. They quiver violently at, uh, as they stand on the opposite side. The rich man too begs for succor, but they, uh, but there is no one to wet his tongue, for fire is within him while water is opposite them. I, you know, I, I, only, I only apologize for reading this in English. I mean, but uh, you know, it's it it sounds uh, almost like something you you would find in the Quran. Elsewhere, paradise is illustrated in both Ephraim's hymns and the Quran, uh, which combines the celebration of fruitful luxuries alongside the exaltation of perfection, youthfulness, and virginity. So grape clusters, right, moreover become a metaphor for virgins, saints, and Christ himself. In this regard, the relationship between Ephraim, hymns 6 through 7, on the one hand, and you know, Quran 44, 52, 55, and 56, on the other, is relevant. So, for example, Ephraim says, the assembly of saints bears resemblance to paradise. In it, each day is plucked the fruit of him who gives life to all. In it, my brethren, is trodden the clusters of grapes to be the medicine of life. The serpent is crippled and bound by the curse, while Eve's mouth is sealed with a silence that is beneficial. Uh, but it also serves once again as the harp to sing the praise of her creator. 
So like Christ, the pious few are likened to the clusters of grapes, ready to be picked. However, the, the fruit metaphor extends further to reward the pious few who, after their, of their own free will, or on account of their death as a child, did not partake in the life of wine or sexual relations. Their reward is to pick from the clusters of grapes in paradise. So I'll just paraphrase real quickly. Again, Ephraim says in his hymns, you know, um, uh, you know that sort of the, the, there's this divine creature he, he picks from the grape clusters, and the grape clusters picked from themselves, because the the grape cluster hanging from the tree represents uh, virginity and sort of uh, child, uh, you know, ch childhood almost. The pure children to be picked, the virgin, the virgin women who reject marriage, and the men who abstain from wine are likewise reforged in Quran 55. So what does it say in this context of Quran 55? It says, and for he who fears the station of his Lord are uh, two, uh, two gardens. Of course, it's much better in Arabic, but I'm just going to continue. Um, so, and it, there's a refrain. So which, uh, so by which of the works of your Lord will you deny? Having branches, refrain. In them are two running springs, refrain. In them are two of every fruit, refrain. They recline on couches padded with brocade, while the harvest of the gardens dangle, refrain. In them are creatures shrouded in leaves, uh, which neither human before them nor spirit has touched, refrain, as though they were rubies and pearls. The virgin men, women, and children of paradise reappear in Surah 56, Al-Waqa'ah. And you become three classes. So the companions of the right hand. What are the companions of the right hand? And the companions of the left hand. What are the companions of the left hand? And the freemen. The freemen. As-sabiqoon, as-sabiqoon. They are the near ones in pleasing gardens, many among the forerunners and few among the successors, upon woven beds reclining upon the opposite sides. Immortal children, crowd over them with goblets, pitchers, and a cup, of, a cup out of a spring. They are not paired by them, sorry, they are not pained by them, nor are they rebuked, and fruit from their choice, and birds, and, and birds meet as they desire. And white eyes, the likeness of pearls wrapped up as a reward for what they used to do. So in this context, to bring it all together, an amended translation of Surah 5220 uh, may read, they recline upon beds and rows and we've comforted them with white eyes where we comforted them may just as likely be read as we paired them. Uh, anyway, considering the undotted resume. Ephraim is certainly anxious about the boldness of his claims. Uh, because the union of freemen reclining on beds and picking clusters of grapes, like the virgins in the bridal chamber, is sexual in language. Through, uh, uh, you know, the ultimately a mystical union with Christ and his church. This fits the Quran's late antique understanding of paradise, rather than that of the medieval tafsir. The, the contribution of Syriac homiletics, biblical texts, and apocrypha to Quranic studies has led some specialists to read uh, the Quran as homily. And I, uh, you know, I, in this regard, I'm talking about Gabriel Reynolds. But, you know, the what we have, especially in Surah Ar-Rahman and Surah Al-Waqi'ah, with this incredible foliage that you have, you know, there's a mountain with a garden and there's rivers flowing through it, is very intimately tied to Ephraim's paradise. Where you know it's uh, it's 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 neither hot nor cold. There are sort of mild seasons, and there are three classes. There are basically uh, virgin men, virgin women, and these uh, babies. 
uh, and uh, all the other imagery that you get, right, the two gardens, etc. All of this comes from Ephraim. It comes from no other text. And if you go even deeper, well, where did Ephraim get it from? He, again, is someone as who is, uh, you know, he's a, a sheikh of his day. He is writing as a poet, as an artist. Uh, he's reflecting, he's meditating on uh, on Christ, on the Virgin Mary, on uh, on the beauty of, of, of divine revelation and of, uh, of wonder. One thing that is critical in the theology of the Quran and the theology of the Gospels is the theology of wonder. And this is where we get ayat, right? The word ayat is just basically means wonder, right? It's a sign. It's a, everything around you is just wondrous. Everything is a sign of God. From the lines of scripture to the falling rains to the, you know, the, the mountains to the, the sprouting of, of plants and foliage and flora and fauna, all of this is in discussion with Ephraim. And he gets it, of course, by meditating on the Gospels. And the Gospels that get it, you know, they, they are themselves sort of a revolutionizing of, uh, of the Abrahamic traditions and, and so on and so forth, going back and back and back in time. The, the examples, of course, are endless, but uh, especially paradise, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to consider. Uh, just how how much how intimately in discussion it is. I'll I'll stop for a second and see if you want to follow up with anything else. Uh, kind of. I mean, you you mentioned Ephraim, uh, who predates the Prophet by you know roughly 250 years or something like this. How, how exactly you you we trace what he says to the time and place of the Prophet? I mean, I I guess and what that implies about the the Christianity there. And why, why that particular type of Christianity, why he would pick up language uh, that appeals to Christians of that particular type of Christianity, and if that might, I guess, isolate other types of Christianity, uh, stuff like that. I mean, but I might just stick with the first one, which is basically how would we trace from the Syrians' homilies to the time and place of the prophet? Right. So uh, this, of course, is a question which uh, scholars today continue to debate and have not come to anything near a consensus. The quick answer is we don't know. And the more extended answer is, um, you know, some scholars have, I think, you know, sort of hit the gas too. They sort of went trigger happy. So Hisham Jait was a great scholar of Islamic history, writing mainly in French and in Arabic. He is a Tunisian scholar. Um, he proposes in one of his writings that, you know, you know, Muhammad, the prophet may have known Syriac in Mecca. I'm like, okay, fine, that's possible. That's still not informative enough. You're just sort of jumping to a, you're making a, a huge leap. Uh, how do you get from fourth century, uh, you know, Syriac church fathers and in these enclaves uh, up in northern Mesopotamia, whether it's, you know, Nisibis or Edessa, Raha, what we call in Arabic, right, to, you know, Mecca or even Yathrib down, way down south, uh, you know, in central, central Western Arabia. Uh, you know, and that's like, you know, three centuries later. So with, there, there is, I would say there's a, there is a, culture of diffusion uh, Ephraim's writings were wildly popular and you know the you know there were there's there's a live saint written about Ephraim by you know later generations and there are other there are other scholars of course uh, namely Jacob of Saru who dies in 521 in the sixth century uh, the gap of course between him and Muhammad is much less a little less than a century and still others like Babai the Great uh, Babai the Elder right and John Bishop of Ephesus and others who are basically contemporaneous with Muhammad. They're writing in Syriac. They're building upon this rich tradition 
where this imagery of heaven and hell is already taken for granted and they're they're taking it forward uh but still even ephraim himself on his own those hymns were wildly popular you know there was among the uh, the sons and daughters of the covenant, uh, you know, a sort of ritual practice of reading Ephraim's uh, hymns. And that persisted for centuries. So then, okay, now you're a little bit closer in time, but how do you, how do you make this bridge? I mean, you know, the Quran is, is so clearly, it's so proudly putting itself forward as, you know, that, they are sort of, uh, you know, attacking you and uh, whatever yulhidun means, right? Uh, dealing with you and, and, and criticizing you or debating with you in this ajami language, this foreign language. But this is a clear Arabic language or a clear, you know, articulate language, however you want to translate it. So when it comes to language, the Quran is very clear about, you know, this is, this is Arabic. This is the trump card. This is the the best and final and most accurate revelation. It's in Arabic. Um, none of that, uh, in my opinion, uh, removes from the uh, the relevance of Syriac Christian literature, which again, through this philological study and through sort of just the basics of textual criticism, you can see that there are these relationships. So uh, one proposal, of course, is that it enters into the it enters into the the Arabian sphere of the Quran, the Quran's milieu itself through Arabic speaking Christians. Uh, and one thing again, so I'm taking this for granted, I may be right, maybe wrong, but um, you know, bilingualism and even in some cases trilingualism was quite normal as it is today, it was uh, back then. Among Arabs, among Syrians, among Jews, among Armenians, among Greeks, among Egyptians, people spoke multiple languages and multiple language registers. And in my, in my first book, when I talk about sort of the, you know, the, the, the calcs and the, uh, the lexica, which sort of just are transferred in these culturally distinct ways, it shows that these people knew multiple languages, whether it was the prophet himself or, you know, the editor Zaid ibn Thabit or, you know, the companions or later generations of editors or these people knew multiple languages uh, at the beginning, at least sort of this Quranic generation. So uh, it's it's not that hard to to make the you know little little jumps here and there. We don't know the specifics, but probably Christian Arabs played a very large role in the uh, really in the fruition of the Quran. Whether whether the Quran was agreeing with uh, Christian Arabs or disagreeing with them vehemently, uh, they were a very important component of of the audience. And uh, so anyway, that's sort of long and short of it. Uh, the a Arabs uh, themselves, pre-Islamic Arabs, uh, Ar uh, Arabians uh, didn't really write their language. Yes, we have inscriptions and, you know, we have little bits and pieces here and there. But so what were they doing? They were if they if and when they wrote, they were writing in Greek. Right. They were writing in Syriac. They were reading in Syriac and in Greek. You have Arabs for over a thousand years before the Quran. Right. And, you know, they know how to read and write. And, in you know, there is. Does we have epigraphic evidence of them writing in in other languages? Um, so we have to. This is why we have to go back again and re revise our assumptions on the origins of the Quran, and uh, and not start from zero or not start from a a theological point of view which says God is talking to an angel, is talking to a prophet, but start here on Earth, 
and see, okay, well, what is going on in late antique Arabia? Who are the Christian and Jewish and Hanif, right? These sort of Hanifites, uh, some people might call them Jewish Christians. I would call them, I just call them Hanifs. Who are these groups? How are they interacting with one another? What languages did they speak? What was their dispute about? What were the, what were the theological positions that they were, um, you know, taking? Uh, this was going on certainly after 451, uh, or after 450, 451, after the Council of Chalcedon, um, the uh, Syriac churches fracture even further. And um, within the Quran itself, I you know you asked separately, you know, there there is indication of so many different groups. Um, you know, you have different groups of um, mu'minun and muslimun and kuffar and mushrikun, uh, ahlil injil, ahlil kitab. Uh, Nasara, Yehud, Bani Israel, you know, you have Firaq, you have Ahzab, uh, and it just goes on and there's, there's, there's several more. So the Quran is this text which is trying to bring together a very, very diverse group of people, um, much of whom it disagrees with, and it's, it's polemicizing. So uh, clearly those people are, are culturally diverse and very sophisticated and you know, know reading and writing and text, and they know the Bible, and um, they know the finer things in life. That's a very different starting point than saying, okay, we're going to start with, you know, sort of a, a theologically uh, um, committed point of view. You have to, you have to start, I think, on earth and then, then work your way up. Understood. And, and kind of touching on what you said a bit earlier, what is the relationship between the language of the Quran and other languages? Early on, you have, you know, among Theodore Noldeke and um, uh, I, forget, I, forget, I forget now his uh, sort of his interlocutor, but another, another German uh, scholar, you know, they were arguing at that point, what, you know, what is the Arabic of the Quran? What is it? And we have, of course, within, you know, uh, within the Islamic tradition itself, uh, whether you're talking about Khalid Ahmad or you know, Ibn Qutaybah or, you know, the Harib al-Quran, like, like what's, what, what, what are these why is the Quran's Arabic sort of different than ours, you know, here in Basra and Kufa? Um, so that that is a, you know, it's a sort of an ongoing discourse. And uh, early on, sort of a century ago or more, you know, that you had uh, the argument that, OK, well, you have sort of some some standard Arabic, like a classical uh, Arabic, which is, you know, whose descendant is modern standard Arabic. But that's the Arabic of the Quran. Nolik's position was this. And. Um, I'm forgetting now, again, his interlocutor came back and disagreed, uh, saying that, no, you have uh, basically dialects, and the Quran is written in a dialect. And it may be even because it was collected and edited later on, there are actually multiple dialects in there. So you have a Hijazi dialect and Najdi dialect, especially in others. So we have to acknowledge that there are, um, the Quran itself, as an Arabic text, is also, it has a sort of multiple, I don't want to say inflections and make a grammatical error, but, you know, multiple valences and and there's some variety in there as well. Um, and, you know, Haim Rabin has this great book on ancient West Arabian. He talks about the different dialects and you know, on the Quran as well. Beyond that, of course, the Quran does talk about lisan. And I mentioned, of course, the phrase with lisan Arabi mubin and lisan al-ladhina al-hiduna ilayk. Lisan here, tongue, means language. Now, uh, what do we mean by language? Does it mean dialect? Does it mean language? Does it mean uh, some, some other register that people can switch between? All those things are possible. Um, but I would argue that the Quran is really, uh, is really asserting its Arabic credentials. 
by saying lisan and arabi mubin. Now again, arabi here can mean Arabic, it can mean Western, it can mean clear, it can mean something like that, right? You know, uh, but it does not change the the impulse, the 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 vehemence, the oomph behind that statement. The Quran is very vehement about it replacing, um, you know, um, overwriting earlier scriptures. Now those earlier scriptures are in other languages. Now we know what those languages are. Typically, what Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic slash Syriac, right? We don't know exactly what language it's talking about when it says lisan ladin ilaykum. Sorry. Um, so uh, we can we can posit that the Quran is uh, very much aware that there are other languages uh, which have a certain prestige and the prestige of divine revelation uh, for which it's competing. And in order to compete with them, it has to say that where this this is better, and that this revelation is clear. You know, uh, was it There's no story that the Jews and Christians are going to tell you, except that we have brought to you the truth and a better tafsir. And tafsir here is not the tafsir of you know Tabari ibn Kathir, just a better interpretation or understanding, right, or version. The Quran is aware of more than language. It's aware that you know um, it accuses. Uh, in some cases, of course, Jews and Christians of twisting the words of God and of changing scripture. Um, and it's aware, basically, of the editing process that the Bible, collectively speaking, which the Quran calls Al-Kitab, by the way, has been edited and has been edited so many times and has been edited for religious purposes, political purposes, uh, you know, uh, very, very, you know, it's, it's mired in, in human conflict. So we can't trust this anymore. So the Quran is incredibly... Uh, aware of its world it's not haphazard it's very it's very much in control the quran is is worthy of our respect much more so than uh you know a starting point that begins with tafsir or sirah because it's saying that it's it's letting us know the world that it operates in is is um full of diverging groups and different languages and uh scriptures which have been mishandled etc etc this is of course a an apologetic or a polemical claim that it's making. We should start there. We should start with the Quran itself. And uh, that's that's sort of the Quran speaking for itself. Now, if we just read between the lines, we look at the words through philology, you know, through philologia, the sort of love of language and linguistic study. And now increasingly within our databases of information and computational studies and, you know, and, and translations, uh, we can see, of course, that the Quran itself is... It appears at times is, is building on a tradition which is which is Aramaic or which is Hebrew, um, and that it's uh, that it's operating in a world which is deliberately cutting them out. Uh, the Quran is you know among the Alim al-Quran says the Quran nas mubham. It's mubham. It's not clear. It's sort of like shooting arrows in the dark. You know it's it's alladi alladi alati. It's constantly cutting out the names of the main characters about which it is speaking and teaching. That is really weird. That's inc- that's so unique to the Quran itself, right? Why would you do this? It's because the Quran itself is incredibly aware of all the texts that it's in conversation. The um, Quran was not just, you know, it's not someone sitting down and then it's not like blaring a radio. 
It's incredibly sophisticated. And if you read between the lines and you use the methodological tools of a good scholar, you will see all the languages and the groups and the, the scriptures and the texts that are behind the Quran. And, uh, and there are many. And we're, you know, we're, it's, a, it's, it's a nascent field. We've made a lot of discoveries, but there's a lot more still. Thank you so much for that, Professor. Uh, as we kind of reach our conclusion, I wanted to ask, what tips and advice do you have for studying the Quran as a historian today? How are believers expected to engage with the critical analysis of this text? Thank you for your question. I appreciate the uh, concern and the, the care behind it. I think we have to, it's, it's, it, if we start from a, from a, from a perspective, from a, uh, from a ground which is neutral as much as possible, where we do not take commitments, whether they're theological or ideological or even academic in any way, um, that's, it's very hard to do. I myself, even until today, as a Muslim academic, uh, you know, who's Arab, American, Muslim, you know, with my diverse background, uh, confused. You know, I, I have a certain appreciation for the Quran, which comes through the tradition. But that's a problem. Um, you need to start from a place where you're just reading the Quran. And where, you know, if it says something like, uh, that you're not thinking of Tabaris, you know, Jews and Christians. Now, it could be. I'm just saying, but you need to you need to come to that conclusion. So you need to start from as much as possible a blank page. I'll remind the listener that you know uh, the Quran is a book. All books have authors, editors, patrons, characters, and audiences. Um, and this is this reality was known even as late as you know Imam Suyuti, who died in 1505. You know there 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 are weird spellings in the Quran. And, you know, it just seems like a scribal error. If it was any other text, we'd just say it's a scribal error. And Suyuti said that. He says, oh, well, the, the scribe was sleepy when he wrote this and made a mistake. So uh, I would say also that not only you start with a, with a blank page and that the Quran is a book, but also the Islamic tradition is so broad. This is where the Muslim part comes in. It's so broad. It's like a mansion. And we today, as whether Muslims who are educated or professional or academics, even those very high caliber, very successful, we have a problem of leaving the entire mansion and sitting in like one room. And we sit in one room and we're like, this is Islam. This, it, for me, honestly, ha, it, that, that has been the most flabbergasting, frustrating part of, of, of studying Quran and, and doing any sort of doing this business. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's like, it's analogous to, um, Living in a world which we, you know, here in, in, in Texas, you know, lots of uh, people who don't understand Islam or have maybe even a negative view <coughs> of Islam or even the Quran or Muhammad. And that, you know, that they they take for granted how uh, maybe the Quran is associated with certain teachings like jihad or something like that. And they're completely ignoring, <laughs> you know, 99 percent of what the actual text says. We are ignoring the rich tradition that uh, that that our tradition uh, represents. I would say also to the Muslim or the academic or the Muslim academic who is approaching the Quran, you're not the first one to do this. And if you're going to do it, uh, you know you have you know Ibn Nadim, Al Jawaliqi, Tabari, uh, 
Suyuti, and even in more modern times, Yusuf Ali, right? Yes, uh, operating in his co colonial uh, bubble. And Muhammad Asad, who was a convert and who knew Aramaic and wrote a translation of the Quran. Wow, amazing, right? You're not the first one. There's so many Muslims who have studied the Quran in light of the Bible and increasingly in modern times in light of late antiquity. And it's fine. The problems uh, arise not with actually your discoveries or with your research. The problems have to do with the social context or the assumptions that were programmed into us. Just like if you were a Christian fundamentalist growing up in Texas, you're programmed with a certain understanding of what the Quran is. If you are a devout Muslim Sunni growing up in Cairo, Egypt, right? Or even Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, a place I love dearly, you're programmed with a certain set of assumptions before coming to the text. You haven't read the text. You don't actually even know it. You know what you've been told to know. There are other things also. Everything has a history. The Quran has a history which we've talked about at length. So does Hadith, um, about which there's a lot of discussion, right? I mean, the whole debate over Hadith. So does Aqidah and Kalam and Fiqh, right? And Sharia. All of these are historical, you know, uh, units. And they're fascinating and they're fantastic. And they all are worthy of our attention. The problem is, again, uh, I would say in, in you know, the certainly in the late centuries and certainly within uh, you know, our post-colonial era, colonial or post-colonial era, um, Muslim people, and I include myself, my people, we've been on the defensive. So immediately the Quran and Hadith and Aqidah and all these things become frozen. They become coagulated. They become symbols which we worship. Even Muhammad, the prophet, of whom there's a hadith which says, don't worship me like the Christians, you know, worship Christ. If you really, really think about it, think about the, the reverence we have, not for Muhammad, the person, but of teachings that anyone would say Muhammad said, or the Quran says. How much do we actually know? Are you actually reading? How well versed are you in your tradition? How diverse, how broad um, do you know your tradition is? Uh, are you aware that, you know, um, someone like Rabbi Adawiyah, who is a woman, um, you know, sort of the co-founder of, of uh, you know, Sufiya, you know, are you aware that um, kalam as a word is not even used anymore, even though it was, you know, a big deal, you know, the 8th and 9th and 10th and 11th century, right? Uh, that there are parts of our tradition which have been, you know, uh, where really the doors of Ishtiad have been closed. Have you tried opening them again? Do you know what the door is? Um, I would also reiterate that even among academics, right, there is a pendulum and the pendulum swings left and right. I would also reiterate to the Muslims studying the Quran that you, there are Christian missionaries and, you know, Jewish uh, apologists and uh, secular, you know, what have you, who study the Quran as well. Some of them do a good job. Some of them do a pretty lousy job. There is some junk scholarship out there for sure. So know that you don't have to believe everything you read, whether even if it's coming from the outside, it's really important to start with a, with a, with a clean slate. And, um, you know, uh, those are, you know, those, those are those are words of caution. You know, uh, and I one last word of caution and I have some tools to offer is, you know, what is a believer? Define what a believer is today. You know, uh, it's it's fine and dandy to say that. You know, uh, I am Sunni, or I am Shi, I am Ismaili, I am, uh, you know, uh, Ahmadi, 
And every one of those groups de deserves the utmost respect and love and care. And I teach my kids the number, the most important thing they need to preserve and carry their entire life is respect. But beyond that, I mean, what does it mean to be a Muslim in 2020, right? With uh, the prospect of maybe a critical Quran, with computational analysis, with, uh, you know, with the prospect of making the Quran a piece of world literature and world history. This is something that I've, you know, a small mantra I've tried to carry with me through Iksa and others. The Quran is a text which is so important, like the Bible, like the Yijing, like the Bhagavad Gita, like uh, whatever, the Communist Manifesto. They're, it's a piece of world history. It's a piece of world literature. Have you come out of your cocoon? Can you step out of the bubble and look at just how fascinating, how important you are because of the Quran or because of the scholars who studied it? Not because you're going to just worship them. Not because Bukhari is divine. And I know that your listeners may think that, oh, well, no one says Bukhari is divine. I mean, let's be honest, okay? I mean, uh, I'm not talking about, you know, literally divine, but, you know, disagreeing with Bukhari or disagreeing with, you know, whatever, whoever is, uh, Tusi, you know, is, is, is almost like a, a sin. No, it's not a sin. And even the Sunni, the Sunni tradition itself, when it was more broad-minded than it is now, that's it's undeniable, right? If you make your ijtihad, if you actually use the tools that God gave you, that nature gave you, and make your best effort and use your brain, you will, in the hereafter, in the next life, have your reward, even if you're wrong. Now, if you do it and you're right, no one knows who's right. You get twice the reward. We don't operate in, that, in, in those terms. I would say also don't worry about naysayers. I've been attacked many times here and there. Nothing serious, but, you know, people just saying things. That's just going to happen. That's just, that's just part of progress. I would say that tools for uh, all students who are approaching the Quran, you know, you be a master, an absolute master of Arabic. It is difficult. Imam Shafi was right. Only the prophet knew Arabic well. He is, I have to agree with him on that one. Learn Syriac. Uh, learn it well. And if you can learn also some Greek and Hebrew, sure, you know, and the more you can read the literature, I, you know, I just gave a, where today is really introduction, I give you a starting point of Ephraim, um, but there's many other things, you know, uh, if you read a little bit of Ephraim, you read some, you know, Ibn uh, al-Kalbi, you know, there's, there, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of resources out there for you, and you really need to be a master of language in order to decode it. So I, I still carry that from my childhood until now, the language really is a, a, a key to unlock almost anything. Read lots of literature, the classical Islamic literature, the rabbinic, the, Christ, the Christian fathers in Syriac, Greek, Coptic, etc. Uh, also, epigraphy is becoming very important. It's always been important, but you know there are some um, there are some uh, really improvements with uh, Layla Nama, Ahmed Jalad, um, you know Christian Rubin. I mean, there's um, a lot of new discoveries, um, and and a lot of that epigraphy demonstrates just how deep the roots of the Quran are in Arabia. It's just fascinating. It's fantastic. Um, so I think I think I said a lot, but uh, I'll, I'll stop and see if you have any further questions. Okay, thank you so much for that very, very honest answer. Uh, there's one more question um, that uh, after which we can, we can conclude. And again, it's a bit confessional. And it has to do with the Quran as something that's miraculous. And so the claim is made by Muslims that the Quran is the word of God and that it is miraculous and that nothing surpasses it in eloquence. As a historian who has spent 
several years studying the Quran, both as someone who, you know, you're coming at it from various languages, from a lot of historical knowledge of the origins of the, the landscape, but also someone who knows kind of the, the traditional stories of the Quran and traditional scholarship associated with the Quran. Would you agree with this? How can something like this be proven? You know, um, the the doctrine of ajaz or inimitability, the uncomparability, the unimitatable, uh, oh, that's, that's not good, but anyway, the, the, the basically the the idea that the Quran is just singular in, in creation has a history. And so it's not for me to really agree or disagree. It's for me to study. So I look at Ajaz, and I'll say two things about Ajaz, the, the doctrine of inimitability. First, it has a history. It doesn't, you know, you don't, you don't have it the first century or so. Um, I you don't have it off the top of my head, but Ajaz is a very integral component to the Ulum al-Quran, right, the, the Quranic sciences. You'll find it in Burhanadi, Zarkashi, and Suyuti, and other folks. It has a history internally and externally. Internally, you know, the doctrine of Ajaz is sort of concomitant. It's happening around you know, these rumblings of al-Nasikh wal-Mansukh, this sort of abrogation of verses where some Quranic passages are more useful to develop uh, the, the laws of the land than other Quranic verses. So you sort of say, well, this one sort of cancels out this one or sort of updates this one, fine. And I actually understand the utility of that. It's also happening internally with rumblings of the doctrine of Isma, right? That the, that the prophet is masum, that he is infallible. We have that, of course, doctrine today for the Pope among Catholics. And, you know, it's like asking, you know, a, a sort of, how do I say, a, a critical-minded uh, Catholic or open-minded or liberal-minded, whatever, Catholic, you know, what do you think about the Pope is he, and it's inevitably always a he, uh, um, you know, infallible. And, you know, you have a, a lot of them say, you know, no, 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 no human is, is infallible. So then I would go back again and I, you know, use, the, use that analogy. Well, we have the infallibility of the prophet, the sort of the rise of Islamic law, you, you know, utilizing uh, the Quran, which is not, I would argue, not the major source of Islamic law. Scholars out there will know that Hadith is more important than the, the cases themselves and the and the, you know, the community are more important for developing Islamic law. So that's where that's where Ajaz is coming from. Of course, th so that's that's internally. Externally, Ajaz is also taking place in an environment where you have uh, Christian debate about the nature of Christ. And so uh, also parallel to this, of course, you have the um, among the mutakallimin uh, you have of course the debate of the the nature of the quran the createdness and uncreatedness is the quran you know sifa min sifatillah is it basically an attribute of god himself is it an emanation at least an extension of god is the quran basically god now of course it sounds terrible for me to say it but i mean that's i'm just trying to make the point uh, or is the quran a product of history like we sort of say today now, of course, that debate is not an innocent one. It's not, you know, an academics versus believers. It was a caliph versus maybe, uh, you know, Tom al Ma'mun uh, in some regards, and Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And these guys hated each other's guts, right? Uh, you have caliphs who were power hungry, and you have religious scholars who, believe it or not, are also power hungry. There is a very long history to it. Actually, Philip Wood has a terrific book on uh, We Have No King But Christ, and it's looking at really the fifth century. The, the Syriac-speaking uh, 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 holy men, 
how, uh, you know, the, the power of the mob. And prior to him, of course, Peter Brown talking about the holy man as well. That, you know, you first had senators. And with the onset of these Abrahamic religions, the, you know, the senatorial power gets passed on to the holy man. And the holy man starts rep representing the people. That happens in the Syriac sphere. The holy man starts representing the people and in, among the Copts in Egypt and certainly among the Arabs. We have lots of, of Christian bishops, you know, Christian, you know, uh, uh, among the Arabs before before uh, before Islam. And these uh, this the, this. The power hungry nature, the 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 nature of power is the driving force behind both considering the uncreated and uncreated. Now, I don't want to leave things politicized and just go, but again, there's a history to these things. I can see it internally within the text. If I do my reading, if I read Islamic texts in Arabic, I will notice that there's a development. If I read non-Arabic, non-Muslim texts, I will also notice that there's an external development. Then it's taking place at roughly the same time. And that the, that the, that the debate uh, for example, if we move away from Ajaz and we talk about the, the nature of the Qur'an, of course, the, 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 the camp of Ibn Hanbal, the, uh, later the Ash'aris, uh, would win. They are the ones who believed that the Qur'an was basically Sufam and Sifatullah. And again, among Ash'ari, you know, Sunnis and Shi'is today, the, that's, the, that's the sort of common aqidah, that the Qur'an is inimitable, that it's a miracle, that it's sort of this perfected manifestation of, of God himself. And I would say that that has a history. And I'd also say that if you look at the, the analogy, right, with uh, the nature of Christ, and you look at the Christological controversies, uh, the camp that won was the camp that said that, you know, uh, that uh, Christ is fully God and fully man, and, you know, sort of Emphasize, of course, that God is uh, sorry that Christ is the eternal logos all the way from you know prehistory until the end of time. And you'll find again Bart Ehrman has has discussed this in his research. So I cannot ignore all this. I cannot ignore all this, and I have to. I have to. I, not only are the I don't want to say sources, but you know are the sort of impulses the same? The conclusion is the same as well, and the mechanisms in between are the same as well. The argumentation is the same, and the the struggle for politics is the same. So I would say that that's uh, that's that's what I would say about you know Ajaz or uh, you know the Quran is being Sifam and Sifatullah, and um, I think I would divulge I confess to I I do find the Ashari position to be problematic I mean even the doctrine of Kasb what is that I mean I'm not going to get into that right now but the the doctrine of you know we don't sort of you know we're not in charge of our we're, we don't have free will but somehow we sort of earn our free will or we sort of acquire it 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 doesn't really make sense to me personally. And so these are these these are theological debates which for me are unresolved. They're open, and the the powers that be that typically emerges from it's very popular. You know, when you look at you know Syriac Christ, Syriac Christianity or Islam, it's, it's very much sort of like the, the the popular unrest sort of flows into the into the uh, um, the authority of the ulama, right? And that they that they really take over, and that's why they're they have so much prestige within classical and traditional Islam, right? That they're that they even are worshipped unofficially, right? Because they were chosen over the caliphs. The caliphs, in fact, were looked at as corrupt. Um, so that would be my response, and that would be my response to my Muslim co-religionists. Doesn't matter what background you come from. Is do is do do you know the history of uh, the miraculous 
nature of the Quran. And there's also this this modern mantra. I don't know who said it. Maybe Ahmed Lutfi Sayyid or one of these in Arabic. Quran Salah The Quran is good for any time, every time and place. I mean, it's just it's 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 nice. It's something that sounds nice. Nothing is is good for. We have to constantly. Why do we have tafsir? Right? Why do we have constantly changing body of Islamic laws? Right? We we constantly need to. If you love something, you got to constantly work to uh, to understand it, to improve it, to um, to see it in new light. And I would say we need to do the same thing as well. I think that um, the, the the position of the Ashari is is is, uh, is problematic. And we had at some point, at least within Islamic state, we had a debate about the nature of the Quran. That debate is gone. And if you if you cite the other debate, you are unfortunately kafir. I'm I have no qualms about just saying it. I mean, we're we're incredibly unkind to one another, unfortunately. Um, and it's made it easier for I think the environment we live in with extreme Islamophobia after the war on terror and now, you know, this sort of uh, hellish political existence we we live in, in in the U.S. and in other parts, it was facilitated because we don't know how broad our tradition is. We haven't sort of, uh, I think, um, taken a proper text critical approach to it. And we just, we just, you know, someone says something, we just believe it. So um, we have a lot of work to do, but there's there's it's, there's a lot of hope and there's you know there's a lot of a lot of great things, a lot of great publications, a lot of, and I, I have to commend you, uh, Usher, uh, for being uh, a great example. Your questions divulge uh, an, an incredible intellect, and I have every uh, anticipation that you yourself will become a great scholar. And uh, you know I'm happy to have done this interview and look forward to to interacting with you more in the future. Thank you very much, uh, Professor, for the kind words. And again, your very honest answer. So before I conclude, I want to ask, uh, Professor, if you had anything in the works that you want to tell the audience about. Oh, yes, of course. So I, I thank you again for that question. You, you've, um, you know, even after a long, uh, long talk, I'm quite excited to tell you uh, about my next project. So I have a project that I'm working on now um, on the role of a female power and male prophecy in pre-Islamic Arabia, looking at the power of queens and goddesses uh, on the one hand and the power of uh, holy men on the other hand. And uh, the, the book has three parts looking at, uh, first part is looking at sort of the, the sort of god queen, goddess queens or the divine queens of Arabian antiquity. And it goes into penetrating detail looking at, um, you know, the different civilizations of Palmyra and Hatra and the Nabataeans and uh, uh, and how what how they can how they conceived of female power and how uh, I argue that um, for there are many many episodes not throughout but many episodes where queens rule independently and where they're very well respected and that in essence is the imp- the impetus for having goddesses you have gods male gods because you have kings and you have female goddesses because you have queens. And not just queens as in wives of kings. I mean, you have very powerful uh, women. And, and so that's, that's sort of in there. And I discuss, of course, the sources at length. Ibn al-Kalbi is very, very important. He, of course, is Jamharat al-Nasab and his Kitab al-Aslam. And, and uh, you know, and again, among the Syriac fathers, there's so many uh, great things. Uh, there's the life of Sabrishu um, and, 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 and many, many other uh, sources. The second part of the book is about matrons of the prophet, which looks at the life of Zenobia, the empress, and... Uh, the church father Paul of Samosata, and and okay, so that's that's one. And the next example is uh, Mavia of Tanuch, uh, uh, Mawia, 
and uh, Moses of Sinai uh, is another uh, holy man. And then the last example in that section is none other than Khadija, Lady Khadija, and Muhammad of Mecca. And the argument in this sort of middle section of the book is looking at how um, the authority and the uh, regency of the queen passes on to the holy man. That story has never been told before uh, in, in an Arabian context. Uh, so we know, of course, you know, how uh, the holy man gets his authority from either from God or from heaven or from uh, another holy man or from a king. Uh, but how, where are the stories where they get that power from the queen or from the noble lady? And so I'm telling that story. And then finally, we have uh, the section on uh, legacy, the legacy of female power, looking at uh, really a number of um, strong minded and even physically and intellectually strong uh, women of the Hejaz. And, you know, one example would be like for Hind bin Ta'atba, she has this fantastic uh, uh, poem in her name, which precedes her, I would say. But anyway, I'll, I won't cite it right now. And then I have another chapter on Inanna in the Quran. That is the largest chapter in the whole book. And it looks at the role of female power in the whole Quran. And it looks at all the things we discussed, um, like uh, paradise and hellfire and uh, other symbols of um, the natural world and how uh, the, 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 the divine female is in it and how over time it gets replaced by the divine male. And then the final chapter of the whole book is uh, looking at, you know, sort of, I call it beyond satanic verses. That, that chapter name might change, but it's looking at, you know, what's the, the legacy of female power after the Quran and how did women during these episodes of being really at the top, uh, all of a sudden, you know, lose all their power. So uh, anyway, this, this book is, uh, as, I, as I tell folks, I did not choose to write this book. This book chose me. I was writing a book about holy men and, you know, uh, and about the rumblings of, uh, of holy men b before the Quran, leading up to the Quran. And I just I, I happened to stumble across all these powerful women whose stories have not been told. And it's forced me also, me as a scholar in the, this age and at this stage of my career, to revise my own assumptions uh, and how much we take for granted the patriarchal, masculine, male-oriented discourse of everything when we study the Quran or when we study even pre-Islamic Arabia, you know, we're just sort of uh, subservient to, okay, uh, you know, this is what, you know, the, the church father so-and-so said, right? Or what uh, Ibn so-and-so said. Uh, the women are completely absent, so I, you have to sift, you have to dig really, really deep to figure out what they're saying, what they're feeling. And I'll mention one thing in there, which is just to whet the listener's appetite. I argue somewhere in the book that polyandry just like polygamy, so marrying multiple men, just like marrying multiple women, is normative to pre-Islamic Arabia. Now, again, if we remove all our commitments for a second, if we just, you know, sort of just forget that you're Christian, Muslim, or whatever, you know, a secularist in any regard, and just think about it, we know that marrying multiple women, you know, prior to Islam, you know, in, in various cultures, even in the Near East, was relatively common and it's, and it's normative. It may not be practiced all the time, but it's legally binding and it sort of exists. What's to prevent the same thing happening, uh, you know, when women are powerful, that women can do the same thing. Again, in principle, if I told you this happened on the island of, you know, Waikiki, you'd be like, okay, sure, fine. Well, I'm telling you that's happening and it's happening in, uh, in the Near East and it's happening prior to the Quran. And over, over time, I argue that, you know, this sort of prospect does wane. But not only that, I argue that polyandry is normative in pre-Islamic Arabia and that it's actually 
it's 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 legally axiomatic. They're actually you know uh, they're uh, within Islamic law. Of course, it it, it tends to uh, problematize. Oh, there's nikah al mudamada, nikah al muhadana, nikah al yeah. That's exactly right. There were these different kinds of nikah. What does that tell you about female power? What does that tell you about the normative, axiomatic nature of these uh, of these marriages and the fact that it was happening and the fact that it, you know this wisdom was passed on and the fact that they're so specific about it is because it was practiced. So anyway, it's uh, I think I've, I've said a lot and uh, I'm excited about the project. It's crazy. We'll see. We'll see who bites and who thinks uh, uh, it's it's not worthy. So we'll see. <laughs> okay, absolutely fascinating. Thank you again, Professor. You've given me two and a half hours of your time, and uh, I, I, I appreciate it, and I, I'm sure the audience will appreciate it as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Usher. Uh, the feeling is mutual. Mm-hmm.